I'm Jonathan Mosen and this is Mosen at Large, the show that's got the blind community talking. On the podcast this week, when it comes to advocacy, persistence pays off. We recap Apple's peak performance event and David Kingsbury discusses his new free book, A Windows Screen Reader Primer. Mosen at Large Podcast. Welcome to our 169th episode. I appreciate you being here. I never for a moment take for granted that there are so many options that you have in internet land. So the fact that you take some time out to hear this podcast is something for which I am very grateful every week. I have been an advocate all my life. Sometimes that advocacy has been in a professional capacity, but even if I hadn't been fortunate enough to have those roles, I would still have been an advocate. I believe in justice, I believe that individuals can change the world, and I believe that there's one thing that is certain, if you don't try and make good change, then you're not going to make good change. I quite often get asked to give speeches on advocacy, particularly in a disability context, so if you've heard me give any of those speeches, you could be sick of me saying this, but I often equate advocacy to banging your head against a brick wall. It feels like you're getting nowhere. It feels like nobody cares. But then every so often, and perhaps when you least expect it, the wall moves. Sometimes it moves a little bit, and sometimes it moves a lot. And you realize that all this work makes a difference. I have had one of those fortunate experiences, and they are experiences to savor. And I wanted to tell you about it because we have talked about this on the show before. As long as I have breath in my body, I will call out ableist language because of the harm that it does. It is foundational. If we don't get the ableist language thing sorted, then we are going to continue to have problems with our unemployment, with the services that we receive, with the amount of funding that is allocated to disability issues. It is foundational. I've been campaigning about this issue for most of my adult life, at least 25 or 26 years. And the first time I formally lodged a complaint on the ableist language issue was back in 1998, when I heard an interview on our public broadcaster in which the presenter said about a contentious issue at the time, you would have to be blind to go into this and not realize it was a political minefield. In other words, when he said blind, he meant stupid, inept, ignorant. And I complained to the body that oversees broadcasters in New Zealand, the Broadcasting Standards Authority. And at the time, they pretty much laughed me out of the place. They said it's a known fact that blind has two meanings. Just look it up in the dictionary. Well, there are all sorts of things that you can look up in the dictionary. And of course, you then have to ask the question, who wrote the dictionary? Certainly not many disabled people had input into that dictionary. But things have slowly moved, and as you will know from this podcast, when I last complained to the Broadcasting Standards Authority about this kind of issue, they didn't go that far. They didn't say, you're talking nonsense. They said, it's an interesting discussion, but that they didn't feel they had a role of being a trendsetter on the subject. So their dismissal of my complaint was a lot more nuanced. And I keep talking to people about this. I talk to people who run media outlets. I talk to journalists. I try and educate because a lot of this thing is not deliberate. Harmful language doesn't have to have a harmful intent. It can just be done out of ignorance. And a lot of ableist language comes from there. 
It occurred to me a couple of weeks ago that ableist language and guide dog refusals have one thing in common. You know they're going to happen to you again, but they can often happen when you least expect it, when you're kind of relaxed, when you're just doing something. And this happened to me a couple of weeks ago when I was reading the Sunday papers and read a piece in Stuff, which is one of our major outlets for media here in New Zealand. And there was an article that had an ableist reference that talked about stumbling blindly into a situation. And I read that and I thought, oh my goodness, not again. But you can't take up every single instance of ableist language or you'd never get any peace. You'd never get anything else done. But then there was a second reference in that same article and I couldn't let this one go because it was so egregious. And essentially, without going into the subject matter of the article, it basically said, if you don't know what's going on here, then you must be blind. Now, I actually have a lot of respect for Stuff. Stuff is doing a lot of things here in New Zealand that they can be very proud of. They have actually employed a disabled journalist who is doing a fantastic job of covering some disability issues. They've also become conscious of the historic poor coverage of racial issues. So they really are thinking about these things, and that's refreshing. So I decided that I would write to their chief executive a pretty conciliatory letter talking about the harm that ableist language causes and saying, what can we do about this? You know, I would be happy to go and talk to journalists about the issues and how ableist language does cause a lot of harm and the kind of things that you could do instead. What constructive positive things can be done? Well, I wrote that letter and waited a week and a day, I think. I waited eight days and hadn't got any reply, not even an acknowledgement of my reply. And I was disappointed by that. And then I decided that I wasn't prepared to let this drop. To have in a well-read column that if you don't know what's going on, you must be blind. I just didn't want to let that one go. So I used, reluctantly, the formal complaints process at Stuff. And that actually did get a swift and very thoughtful reaction. That culminated in a couple of things. The first is that I have been having dialogue with the head of news at Stuff. And it's been a wonderful discussion. He said that he honestly had not thought about this issue before. They're obviously very attuned to racial issues and women's issues. But this thing just hadn't occurred to him. And I emphasize that I understood that that I didn't think people were out deliberately to denigrate disabled people. It was just not in their skill set, and I'll explain why in a minute. But the second thing was that they offered me some editorial space, and as I record this, it's actually on the front page of the Stuff website, which is extremely well-read, to talk about ableist language, what it is, the harm it causes, and what people can do instead. The head of news at Stuff also forwarded that article before it was published on the Stuff website to their over 400 journalists and said, we would like you to be mindful of ableist language in the future. And to be honest, I feel quite emotional about this because I finally feel heard. I finally feel like somebody gets it. And this has come about because there was no frothing at the mouth or anything like that. It was two people having a sensible dialogue. And he has subsequently looked into ableist language more. He's taken some advice on this. He now understands the issue. And we have open communication now so that if there are issues, I can point them out in the future. And hopefully we will make progress. I don't expect ableist language on stuff to disappear overnight. 
But I do think we've got a situation now where journalists are more aware of this issue than they've ever been before. For most, it will be the first time they've even given it any thought because these terms are just so embedded into people's lives, they don't consider why they might not be appropriate. In 2022, in a country where we're trying to be more inclusive. So it's a wonderful outcome. And I'd like to conclude this by reading the article that I sent to Stuff, trying to explain to people who've probably never thought about this issue before why this issue matters. Here's the article. Sexist and racist language is now generally frowned upon, but ableist language is still rampant. Discriminatory words matter. Even when used as a metaphor or said for a laugh, they create subconscious bias. Thankfully, far less racist and sexist language is being used or tolerated now than even just a few years ago. When it occurs, it is rightly called out. While some may lament that as politically correct and woke, I celebrate the more inclusive country we have become, where one's race, gender or sexuality is a source of pride, not a subject that can be used to deride. For all the progress we've made in some areas, New Zealand media and society in general is still full of ableist language. As a blind person, I notice it and am troubled by it, although not all disabled people agree with me. Ableist language uses terms around disability in a negative, pejorative sense. You may read that pleas to a politician have, quote, fallen on deaf ears, unquote. This means that politicians are ignoring a request, Yet the one MP we have had in New Zealand who is deaf, Mojo Mathers, was a thoughtful, considered person. The blind leading the blind is often said with a snigger to lament some sort of incompetence, yet recent history is full of examples of blind people leading organisations of and for the blind, improving the lives of blind people. Louis Braille was himself blind and gave blind people the gift of literacy. Someone might be described as crippled by indecision, yet there are many capable, decisive people who use wheelchairs. I could write an entire article on the ablest language around mental health and neurodiversity. The counter-argument is that words have two meanings. It is said that when someone says, you must be blind if you don't know what's going on, it's figurative. We all know it, and those who say otherwise should stop being so sensitive and focus on what matters. That argument misses the point. Why have sexist and racist references thankfully declined so much? I believe it's because of the increasing participation of women and ethnic minorities in our newsrooms, the C-suite, our boardrooms and in our parliament, all places where disabled people are rare, if not totally absent. Disabled people aren't going to make it to those change agent roles in greater numbers unless we correct centuries of being undervalued and raise expectations of disabled people among the non-disabled. If an employer has been saturated with a lifetime of words describing impairments as a negative, pejorative thing, they must work extra hard to overcome that conditioning before making the hire. Think I'm exaggerating? The stats say otherwise. 24% of New Zealanders are disabled. While being one of the largest minorities, we have some of the most appalling statistics. The unemployment rate of disabled people is still at 9%. Compare that with the general unemployment rate and you see we have a major crisis. The number of disabled people not in employment, education or training is a massive 48%. 
there is a significant wage gap between the disabled and non-disabled. Not only does ableist language set low expectations among decision-makers of all kinds, but disability can come at any time to anyone. When it does, a lifetime of ableist language can limit a newly disabled person's expectations of what might be possible. I conclude with a challenge. Decide to be a part of the change that is needed. If we each take responsibility for reducing and ultimately eliminating the ablest language we use, we will be a fairer, more prosperous nation. If you find yourself about to use words like blind, deaf, crippled, crazy or lame in a negative context and where disability isn't the subject under discussion, Think of what other words also work. If the words ignorant or inept work when you are about to say blind or deaf, for example, you know you are about to use an ablest phrase. All humans are worthy. When we live that fundamental truth through the words we use, we are a better, more inclusive country. And that is the article on stuff. What's on your mind? Send an email with a recording of your voice or just write it down. Jonathan at mushroomfm.com. That's J O N A T H A N at mushroomfm.com. Or phone our listener line. The number in the United States is 864 60 Mosin. That's 864 60 667 36. Apple's peak performance event took place earlier in the week, and let's take a look at some of the highlights through a blindness lens. I'll also share some commentary on what was announced, and as always, I look forward to what you have to say. As expected, Apple has announced an update to the iPhone SE. This is the third generation of this product. It still has the iPhone 8 form factor, and it includes the home button with Touch ID. Some blind people seem to be nervous about making the leap to Face ID, and some people in general think that Touch ID just makes more sense in an era where many of us are still wearing masks. Apple is attempting to address this with changes to Face ID in iOS 15.4, and that's going to be released next week. Nevertheless, the Touch ID method of biometric authentication is still attractive. You get the same chip as is found in the iPhone 13 with the new iPhone SE, so you will notice a huge speed increase over the previous SE. Performance will be boosted because the new SE sports 4GB of RAM, that's up from the 3GB that you found in the previous generation. And battery life is going to be longer. Specifically, Apple suggests that you'll get two extra hours of regular use compared with the previous generation because of newer battery technology and the efficiency of the new chip. If you buy a 20-watt charger, the phone will charge impressively from 0 to 50% in just 30 minutes. Apple hasn't confirmed it, but reliable sources say it has a bigger battery. And if you've listened to this show, you will know that battery life is the subject of criticism with previous generations of the iPhone SE. And you get 5G. Now, I think this generally makes the carriers a lot happier than it makes most users for now. At this point, I think it's fair to say that 5G has failed to live up to a lot of the hype. But you could say that you're future-proofing yourself to some degree. Now, if you care about the colors of these phones, it is available in Midnight, Starlight, and Product Red. 
It has the same front and back glass as the iPhone 13, so it should be more durable, a chance to consider ridding yourself of those horrible cases that spoil the aesthetics of the phone. It has just a single 12-megapixel camera, and it's still IP67 water-resistant. They've gone to IP68 on the 13. All this starts at $429, so that's a $30 increase on the price of the previous generation. You can get the SE with 64, 128, or 256 gigabytes of storage. The 256 is a new variant. It wasn't available with the previous generation of SE. Now, when Apple adds the SE suffix to a product, you know that it's a budget brand and that there will be sacrifices you're going to have to make. That doesn't mean that they're bad devices at all, but it does mean that it's important to understand the limitations of the SE product that you are considering and whether those limitations are important to you or not. The things Apple leaves out may be completely irrelevant to the way that you use the device. So, What are you sacrificing with this generation of iPhone SE? First, not all 5G devices from Apple are created equal. Although the device does have 5G, it doesn't include the significantly faster MMWave version of 5G. Now, this is only a stripping back of features in the United States because in all other markets, all Apple's flagship products don't include MMWave 5G. But if you're in the right place and have access to that faster 5G in the United States, you will definitely see it perform a lot slower than, say, the iPhone 13 mini, which is another thing that you might consider if you're looking at a smaller phone. In reality, though, the 5G included in the iPhone SE is plenty fast enough for every commonplace task today, including streaming high-definition movies and downloading large media files at a very good speed. The camera system is nowhere near as fancy as the non-SE models, but I can't definitely say what that might mean for the common blindness use cases. I think it'd be useful to do some side-by-side comparisons with some of the popular blindness apps like Seeing AI, Envision, and Ira to determine how much of a difference that makes for the tasks many of us use our cameras for. You can't use MagSafe accessories with the SE. MagSafe is quite a cool technology. It lets you add accessories like extended batteries, chargers, and wallets simply by snapping them on the back of your phone with a satisfying click. Finally, yet again, the ultra-wideband chip isn't included in iPhone SE. I personally think that for blind users, this is a big deal that you should think about carefully. What it means is that if you have an iPhone SE and you buy AirTags, you won't be able to take advantage of precision finding. If you heard the demo on this podcast that Heidi and I did of AirTags, you'll know that it's a particularly blind-friendly feature because precision finding helps you precisely locate something that you've lost. And when you don't have any sight at all, precision finding can save you a lot of stress. So I personally would think about that when you're buying an iPhone SE. If you want a small device, for now, you still have the choice of the iPhone 13 mini, which is a more capable phone in several respects, but is also more expensive, and it uses Face ID, which may be a deal breaker for some. I would encourage people not to fear Face ID, but it does come down to personal preference, and that's fine. 
Rumours are that sales have been so poor of the iPhone mini range that Apple is going to discontinue it when the iPhone 14 products are released later this year. The new iPhone SE sounds like a good product that meets the needs of consumers on a budget and who love their Touch ID. Given that Apple must know that it's a favourite in the blind community, I am a bit disappointed that they've decided not to add the wideband chip so that precision finding can work. In other news from the event, there is a new iPad Air offering a 5G option. It's powered by Apple's powerful M1 processor, so you know it's going to be fast. It has a USB-C port. I hope the iPhone 14 has one of those too. And the port is up to twice as fast with 20 megabits per second of data transfer. It starts at $599 US for the Wi-Fi only model. You can choose from either 64 or 256 gigabytes of storage. No 128 option there, but I guess that's the incentive to go with the higher priced tier because really, who wants a 64 gigabyte iPad in 2022? iPad Air now has the center stage feature, which can help you look great in video conferences. I think for those of us who are blind, this is a great feature for ensuring you look your best without too much effort. I personally find an iPhone or an iPad the best devices to do video conferencing with as a blind person because before the meeting starts, you can open the camera app and get feedback from voiceover about whether you're centered in the camera view. That allows you to enter a meeting with confidence that you can be seen properly. Add center stage on top of that and you have every chance of looking great to your colleagues. While I was rocking the treadmill and listening to the new iPad Air being announced, I found myself a bit perplexed about the differences between this new device and the iPad Pro that was announced last year. So I did a bit of comparing, and here's the deal as I understand it. The iPad Air is cheaper, and it has Touch ID, and that may be a selling point for some people who just don't like the Face ID. You get a wider range of storage options with the iPad Pro although the Entry Pro product is $200 more than the Entry Air product. The iPad Pro sounds better because of its superior speakers, and the iPad Pro has MM5G, the iPad Air does not. It does have 5G, of course, on the iPad Air, but not the very fast version. To be honest, I think that the iPad Air will be the sweet spot in the product range for most people. And finally, let's have a talk about the newest member of the Mac family, the Mac Studio. It looks a lot like the iPad mini, but looks can be deceiving. If you are a creator who wants a powerhouse, a beast of a machine, then this thing is going to make you drool. You can get Mac Studio in a range of configurations, for example, how much RAM and storage are in the machine, and there are two chips to choose from at markedly contrasting price points. You can pick up a Mac Studio with the M1 Max chip that was announced earlier this year for the MacBook Pros. But if you want to pay a couple of thousand US dollars more, you can have the latest piece of wizardry to come from the Apple Silicon team, the M1 Ultra. Unless you're producing very complex videos and animations, it's probably way more power than you need. But don't let me stop you. Don't let me stop you. And in fact, if you've got the money to throw at this, I would like to remind you that my birthday is next month and presents are welcome. <laughs> the M1 Ultra supports up to 128 gigabytes of RAM. 
It has a 20-core CPU with 16 high-performance cores and 4 efficiency cores, as well as a 64-core GPU and a 32-core neural engine. Apple says it's nearly 8 times faster than the M1, which powers the latest Mac Mini. Because the Mac Studio is like the Mac Mini, that means that unless you're totally blind, you'll want to plug a display into this thing. Apple's got you covered there as well, because they announced the Studio Display, which is an external monitor. Now, I said that you won't need this if you're totally blind, but that may not always be true, because this thing has a phenomenal speaker system. Anyone who's heard the audio coming out of MacBooks know that Apple know how to get great sound from their computer products, and they have pulled out all the stops with this monitor. You get multiple speakers and rich bass, as well as spatial audio and Dolby Atmos. The monitor also includes center stage, again giving you every chance of looking great on those video calls. Now, you can use this with Windows as well, but not all features will work, including center stage, so there are probably cheaper and more effective options for that. Just in case you were worried about running out of ports, if you buy the studio display, you get additional ports, including three USB-C ports and a Thunderbolt 4 port. The monitor also offers various stands and other accessories. If you just want the Mac Studio with the M1 at the entry configuration and no monitor, it'll set you back just 2000 American dollars. If you get the maxed out product with all the accessories, you can go well over 11000 US dollars. I have to tell you, I do feel a bit conflicted about this Mac stuff. I left the Mac gladly in the end in 2016 when the MacBook Pro with Touch Bar was announced and that dreadful butterfly keyboard was also announced. My article called Saying Goodbye to the Mac is still read frequently. I don't regret it, but I do have huge admiration for what Apple's doing with Apple Silicon on the Mac. The machines are fast. They have astounding battery life even when you throw serious work at them. No 5G on the Mac, though, which seems to me a curious omission. Apple controls the entire experience so they can optimize every aspect of it. But that strength, for me, is also a weakness. We've been talking on this show of late at length and have talked in the past about how Apple can sometimes dreadfully drop the ball on accessibility in a serious way. Braille users have been feeling that pain I'm hoping that most of it will go away with the release of iOS 15.4. But only this week, I learned of another deaf-blind person who is isolated and at risk because of what Apple has broken. Even if I didn't have certain software that I need to use that currently has no Windows equivalent, being so dependent on Apple for everything when their accessibility is flaky and the time they take to remediate it is so long is not a risk that I'm willing to take in my studio. That's particularly the case given that VoiceOver on the Mac gets less love than VoiceOver on iOS. If my primary screen reader breaks on Windows, I have other choices. In macOS, I don't. If I suddenly find myself unable to use an aspect of VoiceOver that I depend on, I'm up soup creek. I do wish. Apple would win back the confidence of those of us who have got to the point where we know we can't depend on their accessibility technology exclusively. So what do you think 
of what Apple announced. Are you going out and buying an iPhone SE third generation? Are you interested in the Mac Studio? And I think certainly an entry-level Mac Studio running tools like Reaper would be absolutely amazing, especially if you are a musician with many, many tracks and virtual instruments and effects running at the same time. It would just be Wow. <laughs> so let me know what you think. Drop me an email. Jonathan at mushroomfm.com is the email address. That's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N at mushroomfm.com. Attach an audio clip if you want or just write it down. And you can also call our listener line. That number in the United States is 864-60-MOSIN. 864-606-6736. Hey, Jonathan. I was actually reading up on your tweet about the next Mosin at large. And I was just looking at, do I really need another SE3? And my answer is actually no. No, I don't. Because for me, the specs has not been bumped up too much. There's only a chip that is really changed. But otherwise than that, the memory of the phone is not changed. It, we don't have a 120 gigs storage. We don't have a 256 gig storage. Would have which would have really appealed to the eye. And for me, if that is not there, why do I have to then buy up, buy again another phone that, that I'm just going to um, pack to the gills with data and not being able to use all the apps that I really want to use? Even though the phone is going to be faster, but the apps is going to be minimal that I can use on the phone itself because this one already, my SE2022 or SE2020 rather, is already packed to the gills and I can't put any more stuff on it. I had to delete a lot of apps in order to use minimal apps on it and it's not fair. I want to experience the iPhone as good and as nice as it probably is, you understand? So why must I go minimalistic on a phone which where I want to experience its you know, everything about it. That's Charlie from South Africa with that contribution. Well, Charlie, you can certainly get a 128 or a 256 version of the iPhone SE. You could also get a 128 version of the previous generation, but now they've added 256 as a new option. Petra is in touch and says, Hello, Jonathan and all. I listened to the Apple event, as I usually do. I finally got to experience spatial audio. Wow, it's awesome. I'm really excited about the new iPhone SE, but I won't be getting one anytime soon. I just got the iPhone 13 mini in September. I can't afford to change now. I don't miss the home button, but I would really like Touch ID. I'm doing okay with Face ID for the most part, but I did perfectly well with Touch ID. It is quick and easy. I also have more problems with this iPhone than I have ever had before, from voiceover stuttering to apps behaving a little strangely. Sometimes voiceover will say mail, and just as I double tap, it jumps to weather and opens that. Maybe that's an iOS problem, not the phones, but it's frustrating just the same. I'll just say that I wish Apple had come out with this new SE before I got the 13 mini. I like Touch ID much more than Face ID. I'm also one who likes smaller phones. I will be looking at this new phone when it is available to handle. I know in advance that this podcast will be a good one. Most of them are. <laughs> I'm hooked. I hope you and Bonnie stay well, happy and in love. Thank you, Petra. I think we will try to do the first two and I've no doubt about the third. Mouse in the Podcast.
There's quite a bit of reaction this week to our ongoing story about the accessibility problems with Uber. I do have some good news to report. Just after I published episode 168, we used the Uber Eats app and we found, and it has been confirmed by others, that now when you select items in Uber Eats, they do again speak when they are selected and we don't have this, for want of a better term, phantom placeholder item in association with each thing that you can select. So it's great to have that back. A couple of other things, though. On Twitter, Sam Taylor pointed out something, and I thought this was the case, but, you know, you start to doubt yourself. Until fairly recently, when you flick through the menu items in a restaurant on the Uber Eats app, you would hear a description of the dish without actually having to double tap and go into the dish itself. You could find out what the dish contained. And it made it very easy for you to know whether it was worth going in or not. But now you have to double tap into the dish itself and get the description from within there. So that is a massive regression, really, in terms of efficiency. Over on the ride sharing app, while there has been no change there, I was very excited. I posted on my personal Twitter account last Sunday, New Zealand's time, that I thought the Uber rides issue had been fixed as well. Now, interestingly enough, what happened in the case of the Uber Eats app was that it was fixed without an app update. So there was some sort of server-side fix applied. And then I went right in after that success with the Uber Eats app, checked the Uber app, and the first time I attempted to request a ride, I got the old experience. It was perfectly accessible. I jumped on Twitter and said, Yahoo, they fixed it all, only to find that Some people wrote back and said, well, it's not fixed for me, mate. And sure enough, when I went back in, it wasn't fixed for me again either. So it was a temporary aberration, unfortunately. I wonder how long we are going to have to tolerate this inaccessible experience that so many of us have with the Uber Rideshare app. And Curtis Chong is commenting on this. He says, hello, Jonathan. A couple of podcasts ago, you mentioned a problem with Uber where after a person typed in a destination, you could not flick right with one finger to hear the results of that search. Instead, one had to use Explore by Touch to focus on and activate the desired result. My findings verify this problem, but with one additional twist. If instead of flicking to the right, you flick to the left, you are able to get into the results list, but from the last result, thus causing to spend even more time finding the result you actually might want. This last bit of information is valuable to folks who, because of dexterity issues, must use a keyboard instead of the iPhone's touchscreen. As for the rest of us, I fear we must continue using the explore by touch method until Uber finally fixes this problem. And Curtis says, if I haven't said this before, I do want to express my gratitude and appreciation to you personally for providing the useful information you continue to offer through the Mosin at Large podcast. Thank you, Curtis. I appreciate that and also the very useful hint. Francisco Crespo is writing in and says, fortunately, in Argentina, the Uber app has not been affected by the accessibility issues that you guys have been reporting. I wanted to provide a possible explanation to your question of how it is possible that these issues affect only some users, even though they are in the same version. I have seen this problem with Cabify, a Spanish rideshare service that works in Argentina. They have an accessibility team, but they were not able to reproduce the bugs I reported. 
At some point, we figured out that some of these platforms offer completely different layouts based on the user's region. This means that what's accessible somewhere may not be elsewhere. Of course, testing for accessibility in this context gets chaotic, and unless you have blind users reporting issues from everywhere, the team will not realize they exist. Once the team figured this out, they fixed all my voiceover bugs. So my suggestion is that you guys attach the city and country where the issue was reproduced. Thanks, Francisco. Unfortunately, it is not as simple as this. The issue is that some of us have spent hours wasting our time, it seems, on filing bug reports. I know that one user mentioned to me on Twitter that he is now cancelling his Uber Pass. I don't know whether Uber Pass is available everywhere, but it is available certainly in Australia and New Zealand. And you pay a flat monthly fee and you get discounts on rides and discounts on deliveries from Uber Eats. And he has spent hours and hours filing detailed bug reports. And I know this to be true because he's an accessibility professional. I know that he can file great bugs. I have been trying to file these bugs. They know where we live. But the difficulty we have is getting past the front line, getting actually to somebody who understands what voiceover is, doesn't tell you ridiculous things like uninstall and reinstall the app, and has basically no clue about voiceover. I think this is the frustrating thing. People are quite happy to file bugs, but they get very unhappy when they've taken the time to provide all this detail and you don't get those bugs to the right people. You obviously got very lucky in the case of Cabify that somebody who knew what they were doing would talk to you and work with you. We have not had any such luck. G'day, Jonathan and all. It's Scott from Sydney here again. Just wanted to bring up the Uber issue again. Unfortunately, I've found something in the latest update that's broken, and I don't know if it affects everybody who uses the app. But as of now, when you choose a destination, you cannot choose a ride type anymore. It says swipe up for more options, but when you try and swipe up with three fingers, you hear the boundary type sound as if you've hit the edge of the screen and can't go any further. And I've tried swiping up, down, left and right, even turned voiceover off, tried swiping up with three fingers, turning voiceover back on, which made absolutely no difference. So another way I've reached out to Uber, and it seems to have gotten me a response reasonably quickly, was via Facebook. I went into Facebook, did a search for Uber, and told them exactly what's broken, that accessibility is suffering in a big way, and then whoever's looking after accessibility at Uber just doesn't seem to care about it anymore. And they wrote back and said that they're going to pass the feedback on to the appropriate team, the same that you always get back. But i got to say, when I last wrote to them on Facebook and Messenger, they did have the Uber Eats issues fixed in an update or two later. But it just surprises me, as you've mentioned in the past, Jonathan, that they don't seem to test these things. They don't want beta testers to test accessibility. And every few updates, something majorly breaks. So until they fix this issue, we, we're locked out of the app. I'm stuck on Uber Transit at the moment. I can't change to Uber X. Uh, 
So I've got to get some sighted assistance to actually switch that out for me. Well, Scott, I can duplicate one thing, but not the other. The thing I can duplicate is that if you do contact Uber through social media channels, whether it be Twitter or Facebook, then they will make nice noises at you on those social media channels and say, thank you so much for your patience and we will pass this on. But it is seldom, if ever, that you actually hear from anybody who can follow up, that you can have a dialogue with. You know, I'd like to be able to get on a Zoom call, for example, and share my iPhone screen and show someone precisely what's going on with these apps. And you never get to that point. At least most of us mere mortals appear not to be able to get to that point. What I'm pleased to say, and I'm, I'm sorry it's happening to you, but what I'm pleased to say I can't duplicate is the inability to select a ride type. But I heard somebody else from Australia on Twitter making this point as well. So perhaps it's an Australian thing or perhaps it's just happening to a few people. I can't explain that. And that's the mystery of some of these things that are going on. They're happening to some people but not others. Mike May wrote in and showed me a position description that's out there now from Uber. They are looking for a director of, I forget the exact title, but it's something like advocacy and disability in diverse markets or something like that. And it can be based in DC, San Francisco, or New York. I think if you're going to do that, you'd probably want to base yourself in DC. They're looking for somebody with government relations, public policy, technology, business type experience. If that's you, you should check out Uber's careers portal and have a go because we really need somebody in there who cares and who's actually connected with our community. You would have to be completely disconnected from the blind community not to have heard the howls of pain from people who are experiencing all of these Uber hassles. This email comes from Ross Winetsky. He writes, Dear Jonathan and Worldwide Mosinites, Whoa, this is a two-part email contribution to your show. Part one. On the topic of songs, I have broken song favorites into oldies and current releases. Favorite oldie is Big Brother and The Holding Company and Janis Joplin with Peace of My Heart. Shameless self-promotion, says Ross. As a very young man, I played guitar in a band which opened dozens of shows for Janice and Big Brother in San Francisco during the 60s. What a talent she was, and so tragic we lost her so, so young. Favourite current release, says Ross, is Puppy, and a least favourite song is Barry Manilow, and I write the songs. And my mother used to sing tragic appellation and old English love songs around the house. <laughs> Thank you, Ross. Part two. Can you or your listeners recommend the best accessible thermostat? After only four years, our VIP 3000 sounds like a broom from um, Harry Potter. <laughs> our VIP 3000 talking thermostat died. I am looking for either a good talking thermostat or smart thermostat, which is not too terribly complicated to set up, and the app is accessible. Stay well, y'all, says Ross. Y'all come back now, you're here. Well, Ross, I don't have any knowledge about thermostats because I think we do things differently in New Zealand. We use things like heat pumps, which can blow hot air in the wintertime and cold air in the summertime, and we've got three Mitsubishi heat pumps that are connected to Wi-Fi, we can control them with Google Home and the soup drinker. 
No Siri support, though. And they also have a reasonable app. It's not perfect, but it's reasonable. But I don't think heat pumps are a big thing in the US from what I can gather. So if anybody can help Ross with his thermostat question, then we would be most grateful. The email address, of course, as ever, jonathan at mushroomfm.com. That's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N at mushroomfm.com. You can record something on your smartphone if you want and attach it as an audio clip. Or you can write the email down. You can also call the listener line in the US. The number is 864-60-MOSIN, 864-606-6736. Hi, everybody. This is Abby Taylor in Sheridan, Wyoming. I have a lot of songs that I like. And I can't really pick just one. So instead, I'm going to talk about a song that I have never liked. And those of you who listen to the Mosin Explosion may have already heard this a few months ago when I just had to me email Jonathan after he had the nerve to play that song on his show. Well, of course, he didn't know that I didn't like that song, so I really can't blame him. But I figured he needed to know. And he needed to know why. And so now I will tell all of you in case you didn't hear this on the Mosin Explosion a few months ago. The song in question is called Goody Two Shoes. And it was made popular in the 1980s by Adam and the Ants. At the time, I was in college. And the reason I've never liked this song is because it was and is about me. Back then, as now, I was one of those people who didn't do a lot of partying. I was one of those people in college who stayed in my dorm room at nights and studied instead of going out and partying or going to somebody else's room and, you know, making merry. Uh, so whenever I heard that song, it was as if Adam and the ants were singing it to me and mocking me for my good behavior. And frankly, folks, I am proud to be a goody two-shoes because it has paid off. I graduated in 1985 with a BA in music, and afterward, I did two years of study and practicum in music therapy. And after my internship at a nursing home, I became a registered music therapist and worked in this occupation for 15 years before I started writing. So that's that. And that's my story. And I'm sticking to it. And great podcast, Jonathan. My best to you and Bonnie and looking forward to more episodes, especially more Bonnie bulletins. I miss those when they don't come around. So everybody take care. Don't do anything I wouldn't do. No, don't smoke. You don't chew. No, you know, you know, you don't smoke. Don't chew. Bye-bye, everybody. <laughs> oh, well, there you go, Abby. <laughs> I can try and increase the frequency of the bunny bulletins. Sometimes we sit around the table and we say, have we got anything to talk about on the Bonnie Bulletin this week, and Bonnie goes, nee, I don't think so. So we don't. But I shall tell her that she's missed. She'll appreciate that. 
Here is Dawn from Sydney, and she says, Hi, Jonathan, thought I would add my favourite and unfavourite songs to the list. Like you, I am a Beatles tragic. Or many might argue I'm just tragic, Dawn. But yes, <laughs> but I am also a folk music tragic. I think my favourite or one of my favourite songs of all time is Longer by Dan Fogelberg. OK, Dawn, I'm going to stop you there. I like Dan Fogelberg and I actually, in all seriousness, do like Longer. It's a beautiful song, isn't it? But it irritates me as well, that song. It irritates me. And what irritates me about it is what is the plural of fish, eh? Eh? What is the plural of fish? It is not fishes. And yet through that song, he's singing longer than there have been fishes in the ocean. Now, I know that the Bible talks about the five loaves and fishes, but that's the only place where I have heard the plural of fish not simply being fish. And it annoys me every time I hear it, you know. It annoys me. Another one like that, by the way, is air supplies to less lonely people in the world. And it used to really, really bug me. And I used to say it's too fewer lonely people in the world, not less. You should know the difference between less and fewer. I know we did a big session on a Mosin at Large episode a long time ago about people's grammatical pet peeves. That is one for me, people who do not know the difference between less and fewer. And then somebody emailed me when I played the Air Supply song on the radio on Mushroom FM, and they emailed me and said, you're probably thinking about this song the wrong way. It's not that there are two less lonely people as in two fewer lonely people. It's two people who are less lonely than they were before. And I have to confess, I hadn't thought of it that way before. And that has given me some peace of mind, you know, peace of mind. Anyway, on to the rest of Dawn's email. She says, my most unfavorite song after much deliberation would be Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. This song has been used for so many advertisements and in all sorts of other contexts that I now find it utterly overdone and boring. Well, thank you for that, Dawn. I became a Harry Chapin fan in my teenage years, which was probably not a good idea because I actually had quite a bit of depression in my teenage years. <laughs> and Harry Chapin didn't help. Uh, somebody said to me, if you like Harry Chapin you'll also like Leonard Cohen. And I can't get into Leonard Cohen, and I kind of feel like there's something wrong with me for that, because so many people think he's brilliant. I just I just don't see it. Anyway, thank you for your email, Dawn. Good to hear from you. Hi, Jonathan. This is Laurie Lavinia from upstate New York here in the United States. I wanted to share a tip with your listeners, and I hope that this gives someone some assistance, as I know that I struggled with this for a significant period of time before I was able to actually get this rectified. I believe starting with iOS 15.1, and I'm not sure if it was the very first uh, 15.1 or if it was an update to 15.1, but it was early to mid-January where I began noticing on both my iPhone 13 Pro Max and my iPad mini 6th edition that unfortunately with Twitter, all of a sudden voiceover would not read properly. And I could not for the life of me figure out what I may or may not have done that could have caused this. I went through voiceover settings or so I thought and would later learn with the assistance of Apple's tech support, specifically someone who works with accessibility, that 
there was a section that I completely overlooked and never would have thought to look at had they not pointed me in the right direction. So I'm going to explain first what to look for if you should have this issue. And basically, it'll be very, very glaring, very noticeable. If you have just recently upgraded from iOS 14 to an iOS 15, whatever the version of 15 may be. If you open Twitter and all of a sudden it looks kind of funky, by that I mean if you scroll around with voiceover, swiping your finger left to right, and you notice that it's not reading properly and doesn't seem to be, it only seems to be reading maybe a word, maybe a part of a phrase, maybe a phrase, uh, maybe only a couple characters, or spots where it seems to have what I would affectionately call dead air, where you scroll and you hear Nothing other than the click of the movement on the screen if you have your iOS sounds uh, turned on within voiceover. So once I spoke with Apple tech support, they told me to do the following. I'm going to demo this as I talk it through. What you will do is go to your settings. Settings. Double tap. Settings. You're going to want to scroll down to accessibility. Accessibility. Button. And I'm doing this on my iPhone 13 Pro Max. Accessibility features help you customize your iPhone for your... Okay, so you're going to look for your top heading, which is vision. Vision. Heading. You're going to swipe over once to voiceover. Voiceover. On. Button. You're going to double tap here. Voiceover. On. Now, you're going to want to swipe until you get to where it should say voiceover recognition. Audio. Button. Activities. Braille. Button. Speech. Button. Speaking rate. Speak. Voiceover recognition. Button. Okay. Once on voiceover recognition, you'll double tap. Using on-device intelligence, your iPhone will automatic. Okay. Once in this screen, you are going to want to look for screen recognition. Your iPhone will screen recognition on button. And if it says on, that's perfectly fine. You want to double tap on this. Screen recognition on. Now, you will want to scroll down until you find the option for... Your iPhone will apply to apps. Amazon Music. Apply to apps. Now, once you double tap in here, apply to. It will show you the apps that this has automatically been applied to. In my case, before I corrected the error with Twitter, I had both uh, Amazon Music, as you just heard a moment ago, and Twitter selected in this particular screen. What tech support indicated that I should do is unselect Twitter. So obviously you'll you'll swipe through Twitter button, and uh, you can hear where it says Twitter. It is not presently selected, and I'm not going to at this time. I don't want to uh, have to restart my iOS device. But what you ultimately do is, if it does show that it is indeed, if it says selected Twitter, you will t double tap on that to where it will no longer say selected. And ultimately, you will essentially back out of this level by level. Screen recognition. Voiceover recognition. Back button. Voiceover. Voiceover. Back button. Voiceover. Accessibility. Back button. Accessibility. Settings. Back button. Settings. Voiceover. Settings. Heading. Okay. And once back to the main settings screen, you can close out of it. You will need to restart your iOS device. Once your iOS device has been restarted, you can open 
the app in this case for me, it was Twitter. And you should be able to see that any issues with reading with voiceover no longer exist. Now, I don't ever recall turning on screen recognition within voiceover recognition specifically applied to the Twitter app. This is possible that I turned it on and was unaware, but I also have to wonder if perhaps for some reason, maybe it turned on by default. It is anything is possible, I suppose. Hopefully this tip will help someone else who may have an issue, whether with the Twitter app or with another app. You may have to do some scrolling and swiping throughout your list of apps once you get to the apply to apps screen to see what, if any, apps are quote-unquote selected. It will, before you actually double-tap on the apply to apps button or option within screen recognition options in the voiceover recognition settings, it will tell you before you ever double-tap on that what apps already are selected. So as long as you can recall what apps it says are selected, you can easily go through and unselect and see if that corrects any voiceover reading issues. I hope this tip helps and thank you so much for all the incredible, wonderful information that you have shared, Jonathan, over the years and continue to share, not only from your own experiences, but also from so many around the world. I'm a longtime listener and absolutely enjoy the podcast. Thanks so much, L'Oreal, both for the compliments on the show and the time that you took to demonstrate that issue. The screen recognition feature of iOS, as we demonstrated when it was first released, is a powerful tool in the right circumstances. I had an app which was completely inaccessible without this feature. And when I opened the app, you would find that there was just nothing on the screen as far as voiceover was concerned. You'd flick around and you'd get that sound that indicated there was no element on the screen at all. But when the screen recognition feature came along and I was able to open the app with that on, I found that there was this initial kind of splash screen with a continue button. And once I got past that, the app was actually fully accessible. So it was quite a revelation. It was just that initial screen that was preventing me from accessing it. But as you've identified, there are downsides to this feature, and I actually struck it right away during the beta period of that feature being introduced to iOS, because I was also beta testing an app, which normally has 100% accessibility. And I found that I couldn't use the app anymore. It was doing very bizarre things. And I wrote to the developer because I was on the test flight builds for it. And I said, what have you done, mate? What have you done? You've got this exemplary app and now it's not working at all. And he wrote back and he said, what do you mean? I haven't done anything to break accessibility. And I kept insisting to him, well, you have, because I can't use the app at all now. It's gone really strange and weird and wonky. And then I had to do what we in New Zealand and I think in most English-speaking countries call eating humble pie. And I believe in the States they say eat crow. When I found out that by inadvertently enabling the screen recognition feature in this perfectly accessible app, I had rendered it completely inaccessible. It is a weird downside <laughs> of this feature. So be very careful with it. And I've not seen it turn itself on, but I have seen people enable it very easily if the screen recognition feature is on the rotor. 
because the voiceover rotor's focus seems to set itself to really unpredictable things. I would prefer that it stayed on, say, words or characters when you flick up and down by default. And I'm not quite clear about what it is that means that sometimes the rotor just goes off into a land of its own and by swiping up and down, you're changing your language or you're toggling screen recognition on and off. So that's the most common scenario in which I have seen the feature accidentally having been turned on and it's been enabled for someone who hasn't realized it's done and suddenly an app that worked perfectly well before doesn't work anymore. It is a problem that we have discussed before actually on this show and I have advised listeners to go in and turn screen recognition off and that has fixed the problem but you can never have too many reminders of these things because when it happens to you It is really disconcerting if you don't know what you're looking for. So it probably is a good idea to just do the full thing. I mean, obviously check the rotor whenever you are in an accessible app. If you've got screen recognition on the rotor to be sure that it's not inadvertently on, but it can't do any harm to just go in there every so often and verify the apps for which screen recognition is enabled. Be the first to know what's coming in the next episode of Mosin at Large. Opt in to the Mosin media list and receive a brief email on what's coming so you can get your contribution in ahead of the show. You can stop receiving emails anytime. To join, send a blank email to media-subscribe at mosin.org. That's media-subscribe at M-O-S-E-N dot org. Stay in the know with Mosin at Large. I'm pleased to say there's a new book out. It's called When One David Kingsbury Book Is Not Enough. (laughs) Sorry, I had to get that in there somewhere. It is by David Kingsbury, and it's a Windows screen reader primer. And David Kingsbury joins me now. Hi, David. Good to have you back with us. Uh, Thank you for having me, Jonathan. It's great to be back. For those who weren't listening when you were last on the show, could you just introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about who you are. Well, again, my name's David Kingsbury. I'm an assistive technology instructor at the Carroll Center for the Blind. That's in Massachusetts, outside of Boston. I'm also active in the American Council of the Blind. I'm the president of the Massachusetts affiliate of the uh, ACB. So I've been a technology instructor at the Carroll Center for um, going on seven years now. And, um, well, that's a little bit about me. And this is the third book, I think, you've written. Is that correct? That's right. The first one was about formatting Word documents. The second one was about uh, web browsing. And now there's this third one. And this current book really is a magnum opus. It is massive. There's so much in it. And I imagine it must have taken you a good while to write it. I'd estimate, what, a couple of years or so? It's taken about a year and a half. Mm. I'll tell you one thing that maybe sped it up a little bit was the pandemic because uh, I didn't commute to work. So that saved me 10 to 15 hours a week. And I plowed some of that time into uh, writing this and researching it. Also, I did draw in at least a couple of chapters on what I had already written about uh, Word and um, web browsing. So those were a little bit quicker to write than the others. But, you know, it took, uh, I think I started in more or less August of uh, my years run together. 2021, does that sound right? Uh, 2020, I'm sorry, 2020. And so it's been about a year and a half or so. But uh, I've really enjoyed uh, writing it and um, learned a lot in doing it. Yes, as an author, you do learn a lot when you do a process like this. What was your objective in writing this book? My objective was to try to write something 
comprehensive. After I wrote the first two books, I thought, well, gee, what should I write next? And as I'm sure you know, you know, learning assistive technology and the Windows environment, it's a little bit like a puzzle, a big jigsaw puzzle. You know, you've got things that you need to learn about screen readers and about Windows. That might be 10 or now 11. The various Microsoft Office applications, you know, there are four or five major ones, various web browsers, and then a few other important programs. And it can be pretty daunting, I think, uh, unless you are, you know, already quite proficient at technology. And I thought that rather than, let's say, pick off another piece of the puzzle, like a book on Excel or Outlook or something like that, I thought it would be more valuable, make a better contribution to try to write something comprehensive where you could get all the basics in one place. You know, the subtitle is all the basics and more. And you could get a little bit more. As a technology instructor, I've sometimes thought when somebody comes for training, it's almost like, yeah, they have to learn what they have to learn, but then they have to go home with reference material. It's almost like they have to learn it and write the textbook themselves at the same time. So I thought, why don't I take a shot at writing the textbook? And so I'm hoping it plugs an important gap, something that can obviously be used you know, primarily by those wanting to learn how to use screen readers, as well as those who have been using screen readers for a while, want to learn a few new things, but then also for other technology instructors, as well as for you know teachers of the visually impaired, that is, those who are teaching students in, in high school and so on. That That's my hope, is that this sort of becomes the go-to textbook. Again, not, not something that's going to replace all the other things out there, but something that, you know, you can go to one place and sort of have a comprehensive guide to using a screen reader in the Windows environment. You're a brave man because one of the things you've done in this book is that you have compared the three screen readers in most common use today in Windows, Narrator, JAWS, and NVDA. And one thing that really impressed me is that you haven't been hesitant to point out areas where people will be losing out on functionality and useful features if they are not using JAWS, because I think often people just don't understand the power that JAWS has compared with other options. Uh, that's true. You know, that comes out, as you very well know, especially when we start talking about customizations, you know, all the things that you can potentially do in setting center and quick settings. Also, some of the wonderful tools like um, text analyzer, uh, speech and sound schemes. So JAWS uh, is really set apart in that way. That said, I, I wanted to give people a sense that once you are comfortable with, with one of the screen readers, the learning curve for getting the basics of the other ones is, is really not that steep. And it definitely pays, like with web browsing, to not just be dependent on a single screen reader. The book is divided into various sections. You start off with the basics of Windows, and then you go on to chapters on specific areas, a number on the Office products, Word, Excel, PowerPoint, and Outlook. You've got web browsers there. And you also talk about a few techniques that are interesting and it demonstrates how many of us use our computers in different ways. You, for example, talk about using Excel as a password manager. And I wondered to myself, you know, how would I do that in iOS, for example? Because with one password, I have things on Windows and I have them in iOS and Android for that matter, although I don't use Android that often. 
And similarly, favorites, which you suggest you could put into a folder and then access them with Windows Explorer. So the favorites are essentially browser agnostic. But then I wondered how well that would work when you use your iPhone, where those favorites might not be there or might not be compatible. Uh, That could be. Again, as you know, as well as anybody, there are many different ways you can deal with a particular technology issue. I came up with this way of managing my own passwords. Actually, after I listened to your very good podcast on uh, 1Password, mm. and I uh, I made an effort to learn it. I spent a few hours working on it, and it seemed pretty cool to me. But then I thought of what the requirements are of a good password management system. And the problem I have as a trainer is I have people coming in, don't necessarily have a lot of time with them, but most people like I had for many years, have the same sort of bad habit of just using the same password for everything. Yes, and that's a disaster, isn't it? Right. And I don't have two or three hours to teach people how to use 1Password or KeePass. And I would never say don't use those. I would never say that because those people like yourself who use them are very happy with them. But I say, at least while you're waiting to learn that other, here's a very quick and easy way that you can uh, do this. Now, for myself, I also, for a lot of the passwords that I have, for apps that I have on my iPhone, you know, I I have one of the older phones, so I use the finger ID, and so I can get into most of my apps on my iPhone that way for when internet banking and so on. So it works pretty good for me. But um, with the um, business of the favorites, I know you uh, talked a few weeks ago about you know, getting into Brave, learning the the Brave browser. Mm. Most people, when they learn a new browser, again, one of the biggest uh, hurdles for some folks, not that it's a huge hurdle, is, gee, now how do I deal with my bookmarks and my favorites and things like that? And the technique that I came up with means, you know, you don't have to learn any of that. doesn't matter what browser you're using. You can just have all of your favorites or AKA uh, bookmarks all in the same place. And that's worked very well for me, at least. And I think it would work for many people. I I personally use two computers, a work computer, a home computer, and occasionally I'll look at some of those favorites on my iPhone, and they're right there in my uh, OneDrive, so I can access them there too. So it works for me, and I think it would work for a number of other people. Again, not necessarily everybody. And now this is interesting. So you're saying if I put those shortcuts in a OneDrive folder and I use, say, the OneDrive app on my phone or Dropbox or whatever, that those will be compatible with my iOS browser? Right, because you just go into that favorites folder that's Mm -hmm. sitting as one of your folders, like any other in OneDrive or Dropbox, or I guess you could do Google Drive also if Mm -hmm. you wanted to. And... You just double tap on that favorite and, and it opens it opens the URL. Okay, that's the missing link for me, as it were, that I didn't appreciate that you could actually do this on other operating systems and that those shortcuts would work. So then you can change browsers as often as you like on any platform and your favorites will still be there. Yeah. Your Excel chapter is fantastic. I picked up a couple of tricks. You're obviously an Excel geek, an expert at this. It seems to me that Excel is a little underutilized in the blind community. Do you think that's true? I think so. I think Excel's a little bit like PowerPoint in that people sometimes just have a fear of it. Uh, and, you know, when I've trained people in Excel and they're sort of new to it, um, It really can hurt your head. You can really get headaches because you have to deal with spatial issues. You know, what is where at the same time that you're trying to learn these commands. It's it's not quite as straightforward and intuitive if you haven't visually seen those things before as simply 
being in a text document. Uh, but the one thing that I make a big point of is this wonderful define names command. Mm. I say to people, if you use that, you put that in very early in putting your spreadsheet together, uh, it makes things much, uh, much easier because people will be deep into a spreadsheet somewhere. They don't know what column that relates to, what row it relates to. And using that define name command, I think is the single most important tool to make uh, Excel accessible. I completely agree with that. And it's something I encourage my staff to do because I get large spreadsheets that can be quite complex and have millions of dollars in budget. And just being able to go deep into the spreadsheet, be able to tab around and know the data that you're dealing with, the column you're dealing with, it makes the world of difference. Just hearing those headers in the JAWS message voice. But the cool thing is that this approach is screen reader agnostic. It'll work with any screen reader. There used to be JAWS specific ways to do this, but this is a general way to do it. Right. The JAWS technique still exists, yeah. but I, I don't train people in it. And in fact, the last time Freedom Scientific did uh, you know, one of their FS trainings, which, by the way, are, are excellent, mm. as you know, they talked about the define name command in Excel, and they hardly talked about their own command. And that's not to say that it's not good, but I think the define names is, is just uh, better, easier to use. And like you say, it doesn't matter what screen reader another person's using because it's an Excel command. And a lot of people at home think that Excel is not a tool that they have a need for. And yet, as you illustrate really well in this book, there are so many home-related tasks that can be best performed in Excel. Yeah, correct. Most people would think, well, obviously, you're going to use Excel for anything number crunching related. But I think whenever you have a list, like a basic list, people's names, their phone numbers, their email addresses, it's much better to put that in Excel than in simply a Word document because you can manipulate the columns so much more easily than you can do that in Word. And then one of my favorite little things is, let's say you have 30, 40 people and you want to send an email to that group. Now, in theory and Outlook, there are these things called contact groups. I found they're very difficult to use if you're going to need to update that list. Uh, new people come into the list, old people go out. And with just good old select, copy, and paste, you can take that column of emails and put it right into the to field of an email message or the BCC field if you want to hide them all. And it just works uh, very easily. And it's much more easy to maintain that list as people come in and as people leave the list. So uh, that's my sort of favorite way of sending emails to larger groups. Now, if it's a lot of people, then you need one of these bulk email manager uh, programs. But 20, 30, 40 people works very nicely, very easy. One of the big challenges with assistive technology training is the old adage of giving someone a fish versus teaching them to fish. How do you strike that balance between follow these steps to do these things and giving them the tools that encourage self-discovery and explaining the actual concepts? I do try to step back and explain a few things. For example, I do spend time on for example, the word ribbons, how you move around them, but then also the logic of when to use them, when not to use them. Um, but, you know, I have to say the, uh, this is a book. It's a textbook. So books can sort of fall short in that way. And I, I don't think it is a substitute, particularly for people who are, who are new to screen readers, to getting training, you know, to get individualized training if, uh, you're fortunate enough to be in a place when you can get it because 
getting a sense of those concepts, being able to ask questions, and people have all sorts of different questions depending on their needs. There's really no replacement for that. Can I explore with you how much thought you gave into the order that the chapters appear? I may be overthinking all of this, but when I was doing technology training, one of the things I noticed was that if you start off with the web and you have people press keys and they get the answers, the results that they were expecting, so you focus on content consumption, it gives them some confidence so that when they move on to content creation, they've acquired a few computer skills and they fear the computer less. But I did notice that in your book, you've put the content creation chapters first, the office chapters, and then you move on to the web browser. Was that a deliberate strategy on your part to do that? It's just sort of what seemed to make logical sense in the writing of the book. And I, I would not say to people, particularly people who've already who already have experience using screen readers, don't read this from beginning to end in that order. Uh, you know, move around, go to where you want to go to because it makes sense for you. But but the way I handled it in a way is that, you know, I've been a, a trainer now for seven years and I'll train people for two-week periods, four-week periods, things like that. And I do have a more or less logical order in which I train. And part of what I put in, not not all of it, of course, part of it was almost sort of me writing down the scripts that I sort of have memorized into my head. And part of that does have to do with the order in which things are in there, but 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 not entirely. So, you know, you, you generally want to start with the screen readers themselves, then the Windows environment. Then I could see somebody easily skipping over to the web, but you want to know something about text editing and navigation and reading before you jump to the web. But, but I think the most important thing is for people to you know, use a book like this in a way that makes sense for them. And for many people, that is not going to be by reading it from beginning to end in the order in which uh, it's presented. When the Microsoft ribbons were introduced, a lot of blind people didn't like them. Jaws even introduced a feature to get around them. They were controversial. Now it seems like everybody's got used to them. What do you think of them? I, like most people, I don't like change. If uh, I often come kicking and screaming into it, but I have really come to appreciate the ribbons. And if they went back to drop-down menus, I wouldn't like that at all. I like the ribbons because, well, at least from the standpoint of a technology trainer, at least for my own uses, it almost forced you to figure out ways to be more efficient. Back in the day where you'd hit the Alt key, you'd open up, up the file menu, You'd right arrow seven times to something, you'd down arrow 11 times to something else, and you knew you could always find stuff that way. Uh, you would just do it that way. And the ribbons also may, almost made it sort of too difficult to do it that way. So it hopefully encourages people to learn some shortcut keys, either via the ribbon or figuring out a way with the applications key. And of course, I think one of the strengths of Windows is that for anything that you want to do, there's usually three or four or five different ways to do it. And one other thing I'll say is, I don't know when they introduced it, four or five years ago, uh, but this really wonderful little tool, you know, the Alt-Q for query or question, because, you know, some people like me, it's my job to memorize all these miserable little shortcut keys. But for a lot of people, it isn't. So if you can just hit Alt-Q and then like type in the word bullet because you don't know what the way to get there in the ribbons is or the shortcut, 
very, very nice way to easily execute some commands. So I very much like that uh, feature for those who don't have the time or inclination to learn all those shortcut keys. Yeah, it's funny you mention Alt-Q. Just parenthetically, I was reading your book on Microsoft Word. And these days, when I'm just reading something for pleasure, I find the voices for the read aloud feature on the ribbons under the review tab in Microsoft Word. Fantastic. They're so natural and still good at a high speed. So I was reading the book in Word. It's beautifully marked up. But it's not until like all the way towards the bottom of the book that you mention Alt-Q. And I was sitting here yelling at my computer going, when is he going to mention Alt-Q? Because I love Alt-Q. I'm totally dependent on Alt-Q. I very seldom memorize any commands. It's kind of like this glorious command line right in office. Well, you know, I, um, you know, uh, we did put this book out for free. One of the reasons being that um, I want to put it out. I want to make it a living document, put mm. out a second edition. So the idea of putting Alt-Q early in, not a bad idea to put that in uh, early rather than way at the end after you've gone through all this misery of having yeah. to uh, swallow yeah. all these commands. Yeah, yeah, it is seriously such a powerful tool. And anybody who hasn't tried this in one of the Office applications, give Alt-Q a try. Just type what you're searching for and then down arrow. And what I find is that Microsoft's search algorithm is very good. Even if I don't know quite what the feature is called, normally Alt-Q will find it for me. It's really well done. It is. And then also, you know, if you're a little bit more advanced, uh, one nice thing about it is you can hit it, Alt-Q, maybe not quite get the right thing, but you down arrow through and you say, gee, there's something else that's interesting. Let me check that out. And you can maybe find out something very new and interesting by mistake almost. Just a bit ago, you mentioned something very important, and that is that the Carol Center is giving this book away, which I think is a tremendous gift to the blind community because it's taken you all this time to produce. And how many pages is it? 12-point Ariel at 12-point Ariel with one-inch uh, margins all the way around, <laughs> three, 325 pages. R right, I think. right. So yeah. it's a huge body of work, and you could have got a good price for work like this. What was the rationale behind making it available for free? A couple of reasons. One, you know, the Carroll Center publishing is not our job. That's not what we're into. That's not uh, our major source of revenue, nor will it ever be. Uh, our, our main goal is really to get things out to people, uh, whether it be technology or other types of rehabilitation services. Then also, I thought it would be good to put it out for free because, you know, technology books, by their nature, have a very short shelf life. I did want to put the effort into this book to put something out that there's a flurry of people buying it. And then it just sort of collects dust because it gets out of date. And I thought by putting it out for free, it will just be easier over time to update it. The idea is, I like to say, that will maybe make it a living document as opposed to something you do it once, it's nice, and then its shelf life is sort of finished six months later or something like that. So I will definitely be updating it, you know, at least once a year, maybe more often as as new things come along or as I decide that there were things things that I like to add to it or maybe reorder, like sticking the alt queue higher up in it. Um, <laughs> so I, my, my, you know, my intention is, again, that it be a living document that I updated and it stick around for a few years in that way. And, you know, another thing is, I guess, more philosophically, 
you know, technology is very empowering, as we know, but technology also has the possibility of increasing inequality. And I'm all for people paying for things. I'm, I'm for the free market and all of that. But it's nice if something like gifts gets to those who can afford it, but it may not necessarily get to others who can't afford it. And, you know, I've got some very nice emails from people in uh, India, Uganda, uh, Aruba, a few other places saying, you know, thank you for making this available. Just would not have had access to it otherwise. And I think that's uh, that's important. Too. In my earlier life, I worked for the United Nations working in developing countries. So that means something to me, too, that uh, it can get to people who might otherwise not be able to um, afford it or, or access it. Yeah, I think the only thing that's constant in technology is change. And an example of this is that in the current version of the book, you rightly point out that in the current shipping version of Windows 11, it is a bear to change your browser. You have to go through all sorts of hoops to change all the file types so that you can use a browser other than Edge. It's horrible, though Firefox has sort of worked around it. But the backlash has been such that in the insider builds of Windows 11 now, they have addressed that, and it's very similar to how it used to be in Windows 10. Yeah, good. I'm very glad about that. Uh, and again, back to this uh, things going out of date quickly. You know, I, I noticed that with the web browser that I wrote. We took it out of our bookstore about six months ago. Probably should have taken it out a little bit earlier. Ironically, the book on word formatting that's done with National Braille Press, the content there is still largely intact. So that still seems up to date to me. But if you're a person contemplating, gee, should I buy a book or not? You're not going to know that. And you might not want to buy it because of the short shelf life. So again, I hope to update that. That's good news. If in Windows 11, they're going to go back a little bit closer to the way it was in Windows 10. So, mm. And if that's the case, that will be in the update next time around. Good. How will the process work when you update the book? How are people going to find out about those updates? Uh, well, first, I got to write it. Uh, but, you know, we, uh, through the same ways we publicized the book going out the first time, it will go out uh, through the various uh, groups.io lists. We put things out that way top tech tidbits and uh, maybe i'll send an email to you when it's ready and uh, yes oh, yeah. please do so. yeah i'd gladly read that what's your favorite web browser at the moment and why i revert to google chrome i just use chrome uh the most personally i still like the google search engine i think that's still the most powerful at least for me. I know there are the privacy concerns. I guess I shouldn't say this, but maybe I'm a little bit more fatalistic than most. They got all <laughs> your information anyways, so uh, whatever. But I think Edge is a great browser now, unlike several years ago. Firefox, I find, has just gotten, at least on my computers, sort of slower, less responsive, a little bit more complicated to do things that are easier to do elsewhere. I've also taken a spin through Brave, and I like to just change them around a bit from time to time mm. also. I, I really like the immersive reader that is in Microsoft Edge, but I also say that there is a way you can do something similar in Chrome. It's sort of, sort of some weird little bizarre thing where you've got to go to some add-in page that they don't call an add-in page, and you have to load it. And once it's on there, if it works, great. If it doesn't, then you're out of luck. Some of the people I train, for some reason, it just doesn't go there. But I'm able to do that sort of immersive reader type of uh, thing on Chrome. 
also. So I go to Chrome, but I think, you know, Chrome and Edge are uh, equally good. That's that's my opinion. In the book, you make reference to narrator becoming an increasingly capable screen reader, and I think we would all agree with that. In fact, there is one task where I believe narrator has the edge over anything else, and that is in reading email. Just when you want to go through a long list of email, open them up, have the email body speak instantly without any other verbiage, deleting the email and going on. Narrator, I find, can't be beat right now. What else do you think has to happen for narrator to become even more viable? Well, you know, I if I was going to ask one question of the Microsoft folks, it would be, you know, what is your ultimate goal for narrator? Do you want narrator to compete, you know, for the market with JAWS, with NVDA? Because if that's something they want to do, then of course they've got a, quite a ways to go to to have the power of all the customizations that JAWS has. But if they want a, a good, respectable screen reader that's responsive, they're already pretty pretty close to being there. One thing that I've been a little surprised at, just my opinion, is uh, they really went gangbusters up to two years ago or so, coming in with lots of new features and so on. And I was quite surprised. I think you may have commented on it also when Windows 11 first came out Mm. last October. Very surprising that there were not major new things coming in Narrator. So a little surprised that Narrator really has not added a lot of new features in the last couple of years after really doing an amazing job for two or three years there of really get up and uh, getting up and going. So that begs the question, has Microsoft stopped because they've gone as far as they want to go? Or have we stopped seeing things because there's something so big being developed that it is taking time? And I do keep hearing rumors that Microsoft is working on a comprehensive scripting language for Narrator more customization that will basically make it very easy for third-party developers to leverage that. Could be. Again, I don't I don't have that insider mm. type of knowledge. Uh, uh, perhaps there is something big in the works, but I, like others, were a little bit surprised that when Windows 11 came out with all the fanfare, really nothing changed in Narrator. But you never know. Things could happen. And, and, and Microsoft overall still seems quite committed to... Uh, accessibility. I use their um, accessibility desk all the time. I suggest to all the people I train use it. It's a fantastic resource. It is, isn't it? They do such a good job of that answer desk. and They really do. Yeah, and Crystal's doing a wonderful job of leading that team. Windows is now quite stable, isn't it? And so what you've written, particularly in the context of the Office applications, could have been mostly written two or three years ago, and that's a very good thing. Yes, definitely. Uh, Little has changed except for the occasional, you know, nice new uh, feature. Windows, I think, also is quite stable. You know, I remember when licenses like Microsoft 365 licenses came along, people were very leery. They did not want to be at the cutting edge of things because they thought it could really mess up their accessibility uh, settings. And I don't think there's that fear anymore. I also remember that, you know, when I started training full-time six, seven years ago, it was a nightmare in one way. We had people with Windows 7 and people with even XP still, people with Windows 8 and 8.1 and new people with just starting with Windows 10. And then what's the other one? There was another Windows in there that was really terrible. Uh, (laughs) I forget the name of. 
Um, I had classes where I'd be training people on three or four different operating systems, all of which acted very differently. And it is definitely nice that even, you know, now we have Windows 10 and 11, but really the differences aren't that major between them. And I just feel a little bit more comfortable with technology that bad things aren't automatic, aren't going to suddenly happen tomorrow. I think it's also great that we have choices now that we didn't have before. There is JAWS. There is NVDA. There's Narrator. There's several browsers. And I don't think we had those choices five, six, seven years ago quite so much as we do now. Yes, exactly. I was actually saying to Brian Hutchin right here on the show last week that there was a time when the question was, what's the accessible application that does this thing? And now it's which application do you prefer? We've got a much greater variety of choices now. Yeah. And it just makes you sort of sleep a little better at night. Six, seven, eight years ago, if my jaws died on me, it's nightmare time or something. I turn on narrator maybe five, six times a day whenever my jaws hiccups on me. And it's just very reassuring to know (laughs) I've got that narrator voice there, you know, just waiting in the wings. It just makes you feel a little bit more safe and secure in that uh, in this wild technology land we live in. One of the things I really like about your book is that we all have personal preferences and you are not afraid to express yours. And people's preferences just differ. We're, we're all individuals. One of the things, for example, that had me chuckling is that you have an opinion that's completely the antithesis of my opinion. And I do everything in reverse that you talk about. And this is relating to the spell checker in Word versus the spell checker in Microsoft Outlook. And you're saying that you prefer the newer spell checker in Word and that sometimes you will even go into Word and you will write your email in Word and then do a copy and paste after spell checking because you like the spell checker so much. And I'm exactly the opposite. I used to write documents in Outlook and then paste them into Word after spell checking because I liked the Outlook spell checker so much better. And then recently I got a push in my Microsoft Office. Now the Microsoft Outlook spell checker is as bad as the Word one. And I was so annoyed about that. So it's funny how people's preferences do vary. Oh, that's funny. Well, you know, (laughs) hopefully reasonable people can disagree. That's one thing I like about your uh, podcast is um, uh, you bring on people with different opinions. Now, I don't think this is something that's going to get people too angry, like some of the topics that uh, you've covered. But I think people can disagree on this one. I I love uh, my love is maybe too strong a word. I just I just really um, appreciate the uh, the newer spell checker for various reasons that I think I mentioned. No, no, I'm going to cancel you, David. I'm going to cancel you because you don't agree with me about spell checkers. <laughs> w- what is it about the word spell checker that you like? A couple of things. Uh, and I'm comparing it to, say, the spell check, the 2016 spell check. One, it's easier to teach, I think, in that when you come in to uh, the dialog box, you always come in at the same place. Whereas with the 2016, you sort of come in where you last were, and it's a little confusing. Mm-hmm. But I think the main thing is that it reads to you so much more context of the line you're on, the sentence that you're on. Uh, there are JAWS keystrokes, you know, insert C for hearing your context and things like that. But, you know, I don't have to train people in that when it just automatically says the text of the line you're on. So, so the main thing is that it reads you context much more easily than the earlier spell checkers. Um, that's, that's my favorite reason for using it. 
Well, good on you. I really enjoyed the book. Is there anything about the book that we haven't covered or highlighted that you'd like to mention? Well, one, it's free, so nothing, you know, uh, you're not going to lose any money downloading it. That's that's one thing. But beyond that, the subtitle is All the Basics and More. And I think that more part of it is in there to emphasize that, you know, even for people who are fairly experienced using screen readers, you could definitely pick up some some nice tidbits, some things that maybe you didn't know before. I think that would be the the main thing. But then, like I said, the main thing, use it as a reference, use it as a textbook, share it with other people, because that's why it's also uh, out there for free. I'll say one last thing, which is, again, we put it out for free, but I don't want to be bashful in saying, you know, if you do download the book and you do appreciate it, and you feel you can uh, afford uh, opening up your wallet a bit, you know, donations to the Carroll Center are appreciated. And that would be at carroll.org, C-A-R-R-O-L-L dot O-R-G slash donate. And that will, you know, also pass the signal to others at my organization that putting this out for free was appreciated. You know, it's appreciated by thank you emails, but it is also appreciated when there are donations. It is a very generous thing the Carol Center has done. And also, it's a significant contribution that you personally have made to our community. I do know what it's like to write these things and how much you have to proof things and check things. And I also come across people who understand the potential of this technology, but man, it frustrates them. It just does not come naturally. For them to have access to a book like this, a comprehensive resource, it's a huge contribution to our community. So I can't speak highly enough about this book. Well, thank you. Again, the the idea was to hopefully, you know, fill a knowledge gap that I thought was there. And if it does do that for a number of people, uh, screen reader users, as well as other um, technology trainers, then I will feel that uh, it was definitely worth the time to do it. And I certainly enjoyed writing it. It was not a sacrifice. So tell us how people can get this book. I think the easiest way, well, you get it from the Carroll Center website. And the easiest thing is just to go into your favorite search engine and type in the Windows Screen Reader Primer, and it's going to be your first search result. That will bring you to a web page you know, where you're asked for a little information about your name, how did you hear about the book, things like that. And then there'll be a second page where you can download it. And when you do download it, it will go right to the downloads folder. The book itself, as well as in a zip file, as well as a subfolder with some practice files, because there's also a an appendix at the end that people can use with practice exercises and so on. One other thing uh, that I'll say, and I can maybe take advantage of being on here with you to get to some of your listeners. The book is big, uh, over 300 pages. Most people, myself included, don't tend to open Word documents that are over 300 pages and try to navigate around. So I've also divided the book up in chapters. So uh, I have an, an additional zip file that I can send to people on request, and I'll give my email in a moment, that simply has the, each of the chapters as a separate file. So if on a given day you just want to read about Excel, you can open a 30 or 40 page document as opposed to the 300 some odd page document. And people can you know, request that from me. Shall I give my email address now? Yes, please do. Yeah. So that could be requested at david.kingsbury at carol.org. So that's D-A-V-I-D dot 
K-I-N-G-S-B-U-R-Y at carol.org. And again, that's C-A-R-R-O-L-L period O-R-G. And I'll send you that zip file as well as instructions on where it's going to go when you when you download it to your computer. So that's a Windows screen reader primer. I would be surprised if anyone opens this book and doesn't learn a thing or two because there are so many different ways to do things in Windows. It's a great read. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast to tell us about it, David. Well, thank you, Jonathan. It's always great to be with you and um, love your podcast. Listen every week and um, keep up the good work. Jonathan Mosen. This email comes from Chris Moore, and it says, Hi, Jonathan. My employer kindly provided me with a Mantis Q40 Braille display. What a nice employer. The device is wonderful and a joy to type on. Sadly, when switching into terminal mode and connecting to my Windows 10 device via USB, the 40-cell display is only showing the message Braille display. It did work initially after adding it as a new device via the JAWS Braille settings. I've tried unticking the device from the list and adding it again, but still no Braille is being displayed. There are three options in the basic Braille settings. Remote Braille, No Braille, and then the Mantis. No Braille seems to appear first, then it flips to Mantis. When I quit JAWS and fire up NVDA, the Braille is there and working without a hitch. I'm rocking JAWS 2020, but due to be upgraded to JAWS 2022 soon. I've heard that Narrator can sometimes hog the Braille display and not give it back. I've not got Narrator set up to work with Braille, so don't think it is that, especially as NVDA has no problem accessing the display. Any idea of what the problem could be? In other news, I've had my cochlear bone-anchored hearing aids upgraded to the Baja 6 Max. They are much smaller in size, and audio is streamed directly into the selected program, rather than switching to a dedicated streaming program in earlier Baja versions. There was always a delay to allow for the switch. Now, it is like my iPhone is constantly streaming into my hearing aids, no matter what program is selected. It is wonderful. Sound quality is much better too. Thanks in advance. Good to hear from you, Chris, and that does sound like a worthwhile upgrade that you got there for your hearing, so well done. I'm not sure if I can precisely duplicate what you have because the only screen reader I use Braille with is JAWS, and I was able to just connect the Mantis and it started to work. I am running JAWS 2022, but I think the first version that I would have used may well have been JAWS 2020. So it should be supported there. Your layout looks similar to mine based on your description. When I go into the options and choose Braille, I have remote access Braille. I have no Braille. And then I have the Mantis, which is the third choice. When I go into the options, I can see that it is set to USB. I believe that if I had a Bluetooth dongle on my studio PC, I would also be able to choose Bluetooth. So if you have Bluetooth on your device, you might just want to make sure that USB is indeed selected. I'm not an NVDA user, so I don't know if it works the same way as Narrator does, where, yes, it can be a bit of a bear to get your brow display back for use with JAWS after you've used Narrator with it. Whether NVDA is the same, I just don't know. I don't use it. Hopefully, an install of 2022 will give you a chance to start fresh, potentially, 
But I would also think that Freedom Scientific should be able to assist you with this and troubleshoot for you. That's what they do. And they've got good tech support there. If you're able to get hold of them, then I would think they could tandem into your computer and just see what's going on and see if they can resolve it for you. So if you do get it sorted out, let us know what happened and how you got it resolved. That beautiful music is the signature tune for another edition of the Bonnie Bulletin with Bonnie Mosin. Hi, guys. Welcome back. Hey. This Bonnie Bulletin is dedicated to Abby Taylor. Oh, cool. Hi, Abby. Yeah, who says a Mosin at large just isn't the same without a Bonnie Bulletin. (laughs) That's nice. Glad I have a fan club. Well, we've had quite the adventure here. I think we have mentioned on the podcast on several occasions that we've had some interesting things going on with drainage. And since this has happened to us, it turns out that quite a few Wellington places have drainage things. Yes. Yes. Uh, We're a hilly city, and we are on a very active geologically speaking, island, being on the fire rim. And so, you know, it it shifts and moves. And then if you have torrential downpours, you know, we have slides and we have um, in the a lot of flooding that, that can happen. I think there's part of Plimerton right now, there's a lot of trouble there. Yeah, yeah, there are quite a few places in Wellington and particularly in the northern suburbs where it's bad. But When I first moved in here, it wasn't so bad. But over the last two or three years, we've had situations where when we've had reasonably heavy rain, we've got water coming in from the internal access garage. And somebody said when I was talking to people about this, oh, you should talk to the council because it might be something that the council needs to fix. Goodness knows we pay our rates, which are expensive. They're called what local taxes in America, Mm -hmm. aren't they? Yeah. So I called the council and to my great surprise, they did actually come in a reasonably timely manner within yeah, about two weeks. Mm-hmm. But then they said, no, it's nothing to do with us, mate. So we went on this inquipid quest, this sacred quest for a drain repair laying type company. And I would call these people and it got very complicated because some would say, oh, we can eventually visit but we can't visit at the moment some would say we're not even taking any new clients and i thought it would be fairly straightforward to just call the number that was at the top of a google search that had a high rating and i'd be able to get them to come over and we called this company in november of last year and they came over and they actually unblocked some of the drains which was Mm -hmm. helpful And then they gave us this estimate. It wasn't even a quote. It was an estimate. And they told us what hideous amount it was going to cost to repair. Definitely in the wrong job. Yeah. Digging a big trench, basically redirecting the water flow. And so I said, well, you know, I don't like having to pay that kind of money, but we've got to get it done. We have to. Yeah, it's better than it's it's an investment in... It could be a lot worse if we continue to have flooding. It would undermine the foundation of the house. Yes, and carpet damage and all sorts of things. And also, the kids are growing up now. And if we ever want to downsize and get a mini Mosin house, then we have to sell it in good conscience with that issue resolved. So I said to the guy, okay, Mr. Drain Laying Guy Man, we'll do it. Get in touch. Well, February comes along and we have a couple of unusual floods in February. (laughs) And... Finally, I call this guy back and I say, when are you coming? And he has no 
recollection of ever coming here. No recollection of ever coming here and, and, and giving us the estimate or anything. And he's basically pretty blasé. Oh, you know, I'm pretty busy. You know, and everybody oh, says this. Bizarre. Says how busy they are. So I ended up having to make a spreadsheet. It got so complicated and I was getting so confused about who I'd called and who I hadn't called that I made this spreadsheet and made notes of who had said what. Was it worth calling some people back? Some people said, oh, yes, we'll call in the next couple of days and make a time and never did. And then I talked to a colleague at work and he said, there's a website called Builders Crack. This may be of use to someone in New Zealand. It's a relatively accessible site. You go on there and you describe your job and people make bids for it, essentially. And you pick the bid you want. You can get them to come over. You can phone them. And I had several organizations who contacted me through that, but none of them turned up. You know, they'd get as far as what time would be suitable. And I'd suggest a time. And they would not confirm and no it's one turned up. a universal issue, I think, because I, I know people it happens to in the U.S. Where yeah. they start something and never finish it. I mean, we are fortunate that, we, you know, it's a big job and we've got the cash yeah. to pay. Yeah. So anyway, I'm desperate and I'm ranting on to my work about this. Anyone who will listen at my office about this. <laughs> Finally, one of my colleagues at the national office introduces me to Jack the Drain Layer. Sounds like you need a scream after that. Dra yeah. Jack the Drain Layer. Yeah. And he comes over, Jack the Drain Layer. I call him up and he's over in a couple of days. He uh, has a look at the work. It is very thorough. They gave us a quote and they said, we'll start by the end of this week. And they did. And now the job is all finished and I feel so much happier. I mean, I feel so much poorer. Yeah. <laughs> um, but... We've got hopefully our drainage issue sorted. I'm almost willing it to rain now. Yeah, especially so we can try it out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hey, but Mother Nature, could you send a downpour our way? <laughs> it does. To... It does. There was this uh, broken pipe or something under the lawn. The trouble in New Zealand is. Oh, here we go. People do a lot of things themselves, and in fairness, they do in the states. The too. DIY. The DIY. So this house has a lot of DIY, particularly on the lower level, and apparently a pipe was laid wrong. And broke or it's amazing it lasted this long. So we were having this water drain across our driveway. That's gone now. Yeah. We're the second owners of this house. So the people that I bought it from were the original owners, uh, the, the builders. And, yeah, they did take some short circuits and all sorts of things. So I hope they're not listening, but they did. So yeah. <laughs> I don't care if they are listening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's cost us a bit. But it was all done. It was really professional in terms of you know, they turned up when they said they would. But I was just astounded by how difficult it was to, s to find somebody to do that It's job. hard to get people to do anything. I mean, my niece and nephew, her husband, are redoing a, like, 300-year-old Victorian house. And they've been working on it for, what, two years now, I guess? Mm -hmm. Almost three. And they're doing a lot themselves because they can't find people to work. Yeah. So it's, 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 but they did a good job. Um, they're done. So they did, they estimated four days and it was four days. Our yard, I've already found a gardener, but I'm not sure we need a gardener now because we don't. Yeah. They had to do a lot of digging and, well, we have a dirt yard now. It's, yeah. I keep expecting to see chickens out there scratching around or something, but Eclipse is a bit bemused, like, what happened to the grass? So, and, um, and I was thinking it was going to be much noisier than it actually was because yeah. I'm working from here at the moment because 
we've got a major Omicron outbreak here. We've timed it so that we let the virus in essentially pretty much deliberately. We're not locking down anymore. When we have about 96 or 97% of the population vaccinated, which is an astounding vaccination rate for a country, really, to get that high. But it is still ripping through and we're getting... 21, 22, 23,000 cases a day. And um, here in Wellington, the peak is really peaking right now. Yeah. One out of every three people coming into the hospital, I think in the hut, have COVID. And a lot of the medical staff are staying. It's, yeah, it's becoming a real issue. And I was talking to some friends this morning on a Zoom call, and they were saying, you know, a lot of people aren't staying home that are sick because there's no funding for businesses anymore. So people are just very blasé about it now. It is very tough for businesses who are faced, you know, they've had a very hard time during the last couple of years. And now they've got real issues of continuity. How do they keep going when so many staff are going down? And it's an existential risk to a lot of these businesses. It's a very difficult time. Politically now, our Labour Party is no longer the preferred party. Mm. And uh, and people for- overseas would find that hard to believe because, of course, uh, Jacinda Ardern is very popular overseas. Uh, but the Sheen has, at least for the moment, worn off. You have to say that one poll does not an election make. And sometimes you do get rogue polls. But based on the sentiment, I think that poll is probably about right. Yeah, they were saying a lot of it is a lot of mixed messages coming out of the government. That they did pretty well for a while, but now it's like they don't know what they're doing. And kind of when that traffic light thing came in, no one understands it. They they change it every, you know, the cases are going up. Now we don't have to isolate as long. Now, how much sense does that make? So people are just kind of sick of it. And well, I think epidemiologically what's happened is that you go through phases with a virus. You try to keep it out which we did successfully for a very long time. And then you try and stamp it out. Mm -hmm. And when you can't do that, you have to live with it. And I guess gradually what's happening is there's, there's a living with the virus, which has been deliberately timed to be when a large amount of the population is vaccinated. But it's still causing massive disruption. People still can get quite sick even when they're vaccinated. Now there's a new variant, apparently. Yeah, yeah. So people are fatigued and yeah the message isn't quite as clear Uh, even if people disagree with it locking the whole place down because of the virus people get that yeah (laughs) but this is a much more nuanced kind of thing so we are obviously thinking of our friends in ukraine and if anybody happens to be listening we are sending you just nothing but good wishes we're monitoring things closely and we will have more to say soon about a very special project that I'm a part of with respect to raising funds. And um, there's going to be quite a big thing coming up in April. But you and I have been talking a lot about about our shortwave memories as children. Don't you think it's interesting that here we are, you know, half a world away, and we both have these common memories from mm-hmm. listening, listening to the short way. And I also want to reach out to any Russian listeners as well. I said the other day, I stand with Ukraine and I have my arm around Russia. And uh, it's uh, the Russian people. So we, we are thinking about you guys as well, because I know several many Russians have gotten a lot of abuse 
overseas, as happens when there's any kind of conflict. But we know that um, it's not the Russian people. No, they're being exposed to a lot of propaganda, but I know that a lot of Russians are just absolutely appalled by what's being done in their name. But yes, we've been talking about old radios and listening to old shows in different places. We sort of branched out a bit. I know we talked about Radio Moscow on the last Bonnie Bulletin. We've been talking about things like HCJB mm-hmm. in Quito in Ecuador. You were trying to get your family moved to, to Ecuador. Ecuador. I'm not sure why. That was like I hated the school I was at, and I was convinced that if my family moved to Ecuador, it would all be perfect. I'm not exactly sure at that age what my thinking, what was in Ecuador that I needed so badly, but they, we obviously did not move to Ecuador. When I was a kid, Initially, anyway, I thought that all shortwave listeners were DXs, but actually that isn't true. So sometimes I would listen to the DX party line on HCJB, and I can still remember the theme song that they used for that. I can't remember the guy's name. Do you remember the guy who hosted DX party uh, line? Was it Craig somebody, was it? I don't know. I, I mean, I remember Jonathan base... Marks on Media Network yeah. on Radio I Network. I remember was... Midnight, what was it called? Something Mailbag, this yeah. Everybody had a mailbag show. Yes, they so did. It was like yes. mid musical musical mailbag. That was yeah. the name of it. But on HCJB, they used to talk about DXs and short wave listeners, and I thought, aren't the two the same? But they're not. So you were a short wave listener, mm-hmm. and I was more of a DXer because yeah, I used to write away with the reception reports on the old Olympus manual typewriter. Goodness Ooh. knows what my typing and spelling was like, because of course in those days you couldn't read it back. And I'd send away my reception reports and I'd get these QSL cards. And now I feel kind of sad that I didn't keep them. Probably worth something now. Maybe. Yeah, because a lot of those stations don't exist anymore. No. It was funny because I found some old Radio Moscow programming on YouTube with the same echo and the same, you know, frequency noise. They did have very echoey studios, didn't they? They must have used condenser mics in a room with a very high ceiling or something. And... I started reading the comments, which is always a lot of fun. I didn't realize there were that many children around the world in the U.S. and the U.K. that were listening to Radio Moscow in the late 70s and early 80s. I suppose it was a form of quiet rebellion in a way. I guess so. But it was like all these people, oh, I was a child and I used to turn into Moscow mailbag and I'd write in with my horrible, stupid questions and... You know, oh, those were such good days when the earth seemed so much smaller. And it was just kind of funny that I had no clue that there were all these kids out there. That Did anybody the send enemy. any curly questions that they answered? I mean, I'm sure they, they filtered the questions very carefully. But I'd like to have sent in a question like, I just finished reading A Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Is that fundamentally true? would ask questions like that. I don't remember that particular one, but they would answer, you know, give the party line, basically, mm. you know, give the party What line. is the party line? I mean, that was a pretty awful book. That was, uh, I don't know, like <laughs> traitor to the country or so. I don't know what it would be, but I wish there was more programming, old programming that I could pull up, but it was... Um, I'd forgotten one thing they did with the news where they would say, here's the news, here are the main points, and they would kind of do these That's headlines. Right. I'd forgotten they... that too. Here, are the, here is the news and here are the main points. And then they'd read it and then they'd say, now the news in, in detail. detail, yeah. So then it'd be like 15 minutes of news. 
And I guess that's the same thing as here, the headline. Yes, you know? yes, the main but, point. But I always wonder what happened. I mean, some of the presenters, I know where they are, but you wonder what happened to a lot of the other. Of course, a lot of them were uh, children of diplomats. A lot of them had lived abroad for many years. I was listening to this old Moscow mailbag, and there was this lady on there that was doing it, and she had the most posh British accent. <laughs> so. Um, but yeah, good memory. I mean, it was an interesting time to listen to all these channels because you did feel like you were peeking into, with any country, just peeking into a different world. You know, it wasn't as instantaneous as hopping on the internet and reading about Istanbul or something. You know, it was a a treasure of trove. You'd scroll down the dial and never know what you were going to pick up and you might hear some unusual music. I remember one night listening to... I don't know whether it was out of Hong Kong. It was it was definitely Asia, China, listening to Chinese rock music or pop music, and it was really nice. You know, Man, so. I remember Radio Peking was just so overmodulated; mm-hmm. they were just totally saturating their signal. We were getting nostalgic about this three years ago or so, and I bought this radio, a portable world band radio with a keypad tuning, where you punch in the frequency, and it's got various features. Made by a Chinese company, I believe they are, called Texan. Texan. <laughs> and there's really nothing broadcasting to the Pacific. Plus, yeah. there's so much interference from all the gadgets. But there's nothing broadcasting to the Pacific that I can find other than, actually, Radio New Zealand. Yeah, and I had uh, searched YouTube for Vasily Strelnikov, who was probably the, the most po- had the most popular show on Radio Moscow, and we found some stuff where he was playing with his Texan. Yeah, he had the same radio we've got. Yeah, and he picked up Radio New Zealand, (laughs) which is kind of funny. I love to hear from you, so if you have any comments you want to contribute to the show, drop me an email written down or with an audio attachment to Jonathan, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com. If you'd rather call in, use the listener line number in the United States, 864-606-6736. Posing at large,